charms in your arms and not in the things of this world. We love you. I pray that you'd be with Jonathan as he brings the message to us today. I pray that you'd prepare the hearts of those that are sitting here uh, to listen, that they would hear something that would strike a chord in their heart and that would draw them closer to you. We love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. All right. I got a little feedback here. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonathan Gentry, and if we haven't had the privilege to meet, I'm a member here at uh, Pillar Jacks, and I I have the opportunity to serve as a a chaplain over at the 2nd Medical Battalion, cover 2nd Dental as well, over at Camp Lejeune. Uh, So I just want to introduce myself there for those who I have not met. Uh, I have some questions for you this morning to start out. Have you ever been somewhere so dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face? Maybe you've been in a a dark room, a cave, just somewhere it's so dark that you can't even see your hand. And have you ever been scared of the dark? Right, for some of us as kids, we probably were scared of the dark, right? Where we, maybe it was a dark room, we were afraid there was a monster under our bed kind of idea, right? And some of us still might be scared of the dark. That's That's a common fear. And the dark can be scary, right? That's why we take a flashlight if we're going out in the woods or somewhere that's dark. That's why we pull our phone out, right, in the, in the middle of the night if we have to go to the bathroom or something so we don't stub a toe. And light is a powerful thing, right? Even a small light, a, a match lit in a dark room, it exudes light enough where you can see. We know that, that even a small candle can help us in the, when the power goes out or something else. Even the smallest amount of light will drive away darkness. It's amazing what light can do in a dark world. And in today's message, Paul talks about this same concept. If you haven't already turned there, our passage this morning is going to be Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. And my title for this message is, A Light in a Dark World. And any time we come to a passage, right, we've been in this series on Philippians for a few weeks now, we want to go and understand, okay, what was the reason that Paul wrote this book? Okay, more importantly for us today is why did he write this particular passage for the people of Philippi? Well, simply, Paul challenged the Philippians to continue in obedience and live differently than the world around them. And now the question is, how does that matter to us? How do we apply that to our lives in 2021? Well, it's the same idea. As Christians, we are to walk 
in obedience, to continue, continue to walk in obedience and live differently than the world around us. Before we get into the scriptures, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you that we have the opportunity to open up your word and, and hear from it. Lord, we know that it is living and active and breathing, God, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we do pray that it will uh, convict us of any sin in our life, that it will, it will encourage us, it will challenge us. Lord, we know that it is, it is the truth and that there's no error in it. So this morning, I pray that as we dive into these few verses this morning, that we would, um, Lord, as the psalmist prayed, that you would open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. God, we thank you, we praise you in advance for what you're going to do. In your name we pray, amen. So the first way, uh, the, the first way we're going to look here today, where there's three ways that Christians are called to live their life. The first way noted by Paul is we are called to live a life of continued obedience. And we're going to see that in verses 12 through 13, that we are called to live a life of continued obedience. Let's look at the first two verses with me in this passage. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see again here that Paul is continuing to pick up his, his message here. And last week we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 2. The week before that, Brian did the last few verses of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And now we're getting into again what Paul wants to share with the Philippians. And you see the first word there in verse 12, therefore. You've probably heard this question from a pastor before, but we do need to ask, why, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, of course, it is connecting the previous passage in verses 1 through 11, but it's also connecting actually back to verse 27. And you see that. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he continues on and talks about being one in spirit, one in mind. And this is what Paul is doing. He is connecting this. So this is one big passage, it's one thought that, that is going on here. And Paul wants to remind the, the Philippians about, one, who Christ was in this passage in verses 5 through 11 in chapter 2. It's a beautiful picture of who Jesus is, this, this Christological passage, meaning the study of Christ. So in verses 5 through 11, Paul has really dived into understanding who Jesus is. He's not just some man. He is a man, but he's, he's more than that. He is, he is God. Now Paul continues to say, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Well, Paul is commending the Philippians for their continued obedience. Right? If we know anything, if you've been here for this series, you know that, that Paul planted this church at Philippi. And he's, not, he's no longer with them. He's been apart from them from some extended period of time. And he is saying, hey, good job, guys. Continue obeying the things that I've been teaching you. And we'll get into that a, a little bit later in the sermon. So it's easy, right, to obey somebody when they're in your presence, right? Whether it's your kids obeying their mom and dad when they're sitting right there. But it's a lot harder sometimes if they're with other people, right? They're not with the people they're normally about. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, you have continued to obey. And Paul, once again in verse 27, he is saying, hey, continue to strive side by side for the faith. 
And this applies to us as church members. We're called to walk alongside of each other in this. Now look at an interesting phrase he uses here. He says, not only as in my presence, but my, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Now wait a minute. Paul, are, are you saying we've got to figure out salvation on our own? Are, are we doing something here that we need to figure out? Well, no. Well, Paul is not saying that at all. Paul is not actually speaking about this act of salvation, that moment where you repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus. No, what Paul is talking about here is the process of sanctification, right? And that accompanies salvation. Of course, there, there are two concepts we, we really need to understand when it comes to our salvation. So in the moment of salvation, if you can think back to that, you don't have to have an exact moment or a date in your head, but if you know that, you know this. In that moment, you are considered, you are justified before God. So there's two concepts. You have justification, and then you have sanctification. Sanctification, we'll talk about in a second, but justification is in that moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God declared you righteous before Him. He sees the blood of Jesus on your life. And so those things that you are going to have to pay a penalty for, you're no longer going to have to do that. And that's a one-time thing in that exact moment. Now, sanctification is a different thing. It's a, a continual thing. You may have heard the term progressive sanctification. And what happens there is as we are walking along in our faith, as we get deeper and deeper in the years, we know that, that God is continuing to make us more like His Son, Jesus. Right? If you can think back to some of maybe your early year, years as a Christian, you know that there were certain things you, you struggled with. And hopefully that you're maybe further along in your journey with Christ that you maybe don't struggle with those anymore. And that's part of the sanctification. So when you're convicted of sin, don't run away from that. That's the Holy Spirit pointing out something in your life. And we need to take into account that and continue to walk in that. Because God is not satisfied with who we were. He's going to take us to somewhere that he wants to make us. And so this is what Paul is getting at here in this passage. He says, work out your salvation. Now, Paul fully believes that this is God's process. This isn't our own. There's things we can do being obedient, continued obedience, right, that, that can only help us. But Paul understands that only God can change our sinful hearts. We can't do enough. Right? I serve as a chaplain, and I, I have people come to my office, and I counsel them and things, right, and I can give them tools and resources. But at the end of the day, it's up to them to do it, right? So continued obedience comes into this, but Paul is saying, that, hey, it's only God who really can bring that sanctification into our lives. But what Paul is saying here is by our continued obedience to God and His Word, we show that we are truly saved, right? We, we show that we are truly saved. If there's no fruit bearing, like an apple tree, and you go to it and there's no apple fruit, well, maybe it's not, it's not producing the fruit it does. Same for us as Christians. We're called to be obedient and produce fruit. And look at the last few words here in verse 12. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or, or are we supposed to fear God in this scary way? No, we're called as Christians to have an awe and a reverence for, for God. We don't have to fear God. We don't have to fear His wrath. But we do need to have an awe and a reverence for Him. And if you look, if we were to have the time to read chapter 2, you would see the humility, right? Even if you, you have a, in your title, it may say Christ's example of humility. And that's how we come before God, in humility, in, in, in awe, in reverence of what God has done in our life. And we go in obedience and submission to Him. 
And look at verse 13. Paul continues and says, For it is God who works in you. And so we know that at the end of the day, that God is the one working in us. He is the one making us more like Jesus. He is the one taking the initiative. And that's a good thing, right, for us. We don't have to do this in our own power. Because, you know, I'm sure we could go around the room and raise hands and talk about every time we've done something in our own power, it probably didn't end up pretty well, did it? And this is what Paul is saying. He says, hey, guys, Philippians, and for us as well, we do not have to do this walk by ourselves. There's, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit and, of course, the body of Christ. Because this is who Paul is writing it to, is the church here at Philippi. So we don't have to do it in our own power. We're called to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And look at this. God is calling to us to obedience. One pastor writes it this way. I think it's, it's a pretty, pretty good way of thinking about it. He said, talking about the Christians, he calls them to obey and then through his sovereign power empowers their obedience. He calls them to his service and then empowers their service. He calls them to holiness and then empowers them to pursue holiness. So it's not some impossible task that God has given us and saying, hey, you need to obey me, and then doesn't give us the power to obey us or obey him. At the end of the day, he's empowering us through the Holy Spirit to follow him in obedience. And it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one, one and done like a college freshman in basketball, right? No, it is, we continually do this day after day. And Paul even knows this. He knows that even in his own life, if we were to go back and read his resume, uh, we would understand that he, he knows that God is doing this, and it's not anything of his own power. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. Such a beautiful passage. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. So Paul understands that he's not doing this in his own power. And just the same for us. We do not have to try and walk in continual obedience without the power of God. And God is saying this here in this continued next page, this passage here. He says he's doing it to both will and work for his good pleasure. And if we were to look at the Greek word here, this is actually where we get our English word energy. And that's what God is saying. He says, hey, I'm doing the work. I'm giving the initiative to do this. I'm bringing about this in your own, your own life. And why? It's ultimately for his good pleasure, but more importantly, his glory. Anything God does in our life to make us more like his son Jesus, it's not for us. It's not so we can go say, oh, look at what God did in my life. Well, that may be great because that might help other people see it. But at the end of the day, it's all about the glory of God. And God is doing this ultimately for his own good pleasure. And when, we, when he does work in our life, when he delivers us from sin, when he gives us freedom from something, it's for his own glory. Hebrews 13.21 sums it up very well. It says, uh, he says, Equip you with an everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Very similar to what Paul is saying. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Wow, this is beautiful for us as Christians because we know that as Paul is saying, hey, we're called to live a life of continued obedience and we don't have to do it on our own. In addition to the first action here of we are called to live a life of continued obedience, notice, second, we are called to live a life set apart. 
We are called to live a life set apart. Look at verses 14 and 16 with me. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So once again, going back to verse 27 in chapter 1, we see that Paul is this theme of unity in the church. And Paul kind of switches gears, still looking at unity, but in a different vein. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some of your translations may be complaining, so that's kind of what I'll, I'll use. Uh, Paul is calling them to be different in their responses for life. No matter what happens, he's calling say, hey, you don't always have to complain or grumble about it, right? We know how, how easy it is to grumble and complain, myself included. I, I find myself like, hey, why am I always being critical? Why am I always complaining? Whether it's, the, it's too hot outside or the Olympians should have gotten gold and they got silver, right? Or they missed a vault in you know, gymnastics. Uh, so we complain about those things, right? Like, Man, we, we can never go do that, right? We can do some flip in the air, but yet we think they should, right? So we, we'll complain about a lot of things. And, and that's easy. And so Paul understands that. He says, this is a, this is a thing. This is a thing we have to, to daily battle. But he also knows that if that happens within the church, it can wreak and it will wreak havoc. And so this is very important for us to remember, that just because this, we might be a part of a healthy church, that we're not susceptible to complaining and grumbling and all those things, right? We need to honestly look inside of ourselves, myself included, and say, hey, are, what are we complaining about? Or what are we getting mad about or angry about? And what Paul is saying, he says, if we don't get this in check, it can ruin the church. It, I'm sure you've heard stories of churches splitting over simple things, right? Not primary doctrines about the, the, the divinity of God. It's the recipe over fried chicken, right? right? That they'll complain and grumble about anything. But what Paul is saying, he says, if we don't get that in check, then this is going to wreak havoc. So, and so he's saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And look at what he says next. He says that you may be blameless and innocent. Wait a minute. Wait, is Paul saying we got to be perfect now? Like, is he, is he know what he's talking about anymore? Is he senile in prison? Is he, he tasted bad water? No, what Paul is saying is here, it's better translated pure and blameless, right? He, he, he is calling us to be above approach in life. I think of all my points this morning, I think I, I really want us to focus in on this because what we see here in the Scripture is that we are called to be children of God without blemish. Look at what it says there. Look at the text, not what I say, but it says children of God without blemish in the midst of, wait for it, a crooked and twisted generation. If red flags aren't going in your head, I, don't, I think they should be, of, of the society that we live in today, given this was not written to 2021 church, but it is applicable to us today. What does he mean by this crooked and twisted generation? Well, Paul actually is pulling from an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5. Listen to, this is part of the Song of Moses. Moses is writing this, talking about the people of Israel. He has some pretty, pretty brash words. He says in verse 32, or 5 of chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, they have dealt corruptly with him. They're talking about God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Wait a minute. That's exactly what Paul says. 
of course, he, he uses it in a different way here, and we'll, we'll discuss that in a second. So what do these two words mean, right? These are probably not something we use in our vocabulary every day, but let's look at them. Crooked means pertaining to being morally bent or twisted. Now, we know what crooked means, right? If I were to say, hey, I want you to go get me a straight stick out in the woods, and you, you bring me back a crooked one, right? Well, that's not what I asked you for. It's I need a straight stick, not a, a crooked stick. Or twisted, or your translation could say perverse, it means to cause, to depart from an accepted standard of oral or spiritual values. Once again, if, if red flags are not going off in your head, they should be. Because what Paul is understanding, even in the midst of the church at Philippi, all the things that were going on around them, he was saying, hey, you're called to live blameless life even in the midst of this. Right? We don't curl up on a ball and you know, cry uncle. No, we're called to live lives that are pure and blameless. And so what Paul is using this passage in Deuteronomy, he's, he's turning it on its head and saying, hey, that's what they were. You're called to be the opposite. You're called to live lives that are set apart. And, and that's the thing for us today that we can take away from this, of course, individually. But as a church, we are called to live differently than the world around us. We're not called to look like the world. If anything, the church is supposed to set the example of living a blameless life to the world around it. Right? The, church, the culture should not be determining what the church should do. At the end of the day, the church should be influencing how culture does things. Right? If you want to think about it in the scenario of a thermostat versus a thermometer, right? If we were to go take a thermometer outside, it might say, you know, 117 degrees or whatever, and it, the thermometer would adjust to the temperature around it. But a thermostat, if we were to go over there and adjust that one, it would go to what we want it. Okay, and so that's the thing. We get to set that. It's that same idea that Paul is saying here, that our lives must be, must be different than the world around us. So the question for all of us, myself included, is do our lives look like what God's Word tells us to look like? Or do our lives look what the world tells us to look like? And there's a difference. They cannot coincide unless the world suddenly becomes a Christian world. Our lives must be different than the world around us. And we cannot we cannot equivocate on this. There's no gray area. We can't do one or the other and say, I want to be in this one day and this. No, it's not how it works as a follower of Christ. Because see what Paul says here. He says, you are to shine as lights in the world. Right? And we know the power of a light in a dark place. And that's what God is calling us to be in this generation. And I would say that our generation is crooked and twisted. So what Paul is getting at here is that we are to be a light in the dark world. We are to be a light in the pagan culture around us. When the world embraces sin, you know what we're called to do? Embrace it, right? No, we're called to run from sin, right? We're called to flee from it. There's a passage, I think it's in Timothy, where Paul writes, he says, flee from youthful lust, right? And I had a pastor when I was in a youth group back in Georgia. He it was a guest speaker at like some youth event. And he, he was preaching, I think, on this particular passage. And he defined flee in this way, and I've never forgotten. He says, flee is to saturate the place with your absence. It's not to hang around. It's to get out of there as fast as you can. And that's what, what Paul is saying. He says, hey, your life should be totally different. It should not look like the world around it. One commentator explains this in a great way as well. He says, The people of God 
are to shine in the world over against its darkness, while simultaneously they are to illuminate their darkness. Here, listen to this section here. He says, that is, by their attitudes and behavior, they are to be clearly distinguishable from and in opposition to the world around them. So my question for us all is if I were to go, if any of us were going to each other's workspace and ask a coworker about our about you, what would they say? Would they be surprised to know that you're a Christian? Do our lives reflect the fact that we are called as Christians to live a life set apart? Even Matthew, he, he writes about this same idea of shining as lights in a dark world. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Listen, this is so good. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Wait for it. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So at the end of the day, I hope we can all look back on our lives and see that, hey, we push more people closer to Christ than we did anything else. And look at verse 16 here. It says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So once again, Paul is reminding him, hey, guys, hold fast to the gospel that I have taught you. Right? He didn't have a, a Bible just to pass out, right? A little New Testament, here's your first letter of John. No, he, he had to teach them. And so what Paul is saying, he says, hold fast to that even in the midst of a dark generation, right? It's easy to, to give up when there's resistance, right? We often, myself included, want to take the path of least resistance. But what Paul is saying here says, hey, no, hold fast. Hold fast to what I've been teaching you. Hold fast to the truth of this book, right? There are men and women who have gone before us who have fought for this book, right? The, the validity of this book, there is no error in it. It's fully true. And once again, we cannot bow down to culture. Like We just can't. It, there's too much at stake for us to just bow down to culture and say, oh, well, they say this is wrong, Then, even though it says it's right in the Bible. then No, no, no. We must stand on the Word of God. We, we cannot. And if you haven't made that decision today on what your view is on the Bible, you need to. Because it, it, there's too much at stake in our culture right now to do anything else. So Paul is emphasizing again how important it is to hold fast the word of life. And look at it. This is the reason he said it. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In this day of Christ, he knows that one day, right, it could be any time. He doesn't know when his time is up. But that one day, he is going to have to give an account of his ministry to the Philippians and everybody else he has. He wants to be found faithful. So our obedience not only affects us, it affects others, right? So if the Philippians were to not do everything that Paul had already taught them and continue, and they're like, ah, Paul's gone, it's no good, it's going to reflect him because maybe it wasn't something he did, it's just their lack of obedience. So it affects Paul if they fall away from the faith. So at the end of the day, our focus must be continued obedience, living a life set apart. Because one day we personally will have to give an account, right? We will personally have to give an account to God the Father and say, hey, what do we do with our life? Were we faithful? Do we continue in the faith? So, of course, we have to have an eternal view towards the, the end of our life. 
So in addition to be called to live a life of continued obedience and to live a life set apart, this text reveals that third, we are called to live a life of rejoicing. We are called to live a life of rejoicing. And if you've been with us through this series, you, you kind of understand that that's, that's a, a small theme that Paul has of rejoicing in his circumstances. Listen to verses 17 and 18. He says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul uses some, some interesting terminology here that we, we need to, to break down for a second. He says, drink offering, sacrificial offering. What is Paul talking about here? Well, Paul, he, he understands first that his life may be half to given for the sake of the gospel. We've already talked about that. I believe when I preached the last time in the first chapter, we, we discussed that at any moment he, he might lose his life. But he knew that whether by life or death, that it was ultimately for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this imagery here that Paul is pulling, this drink offering, this sacrificial offering, of course goes back to the Jewish sacrificial system. The sacrifice, where it says the sacrifice offering, was the primary offering that was offered for the Jewish people. They would, they would do this sacrifice, and then this drink offering would come secondary. It, would, it wasn't as important, but it was still important. And why Paul is using this, because he understands that the Philippians have, have done a lot for him. They've gone through hardship, right? They're, he's no longer there. They've had to suffer in ways for the gospel. But he is counting it as joy because he understands that because of the gospel, they're going to suffer as well. Paul understood that he, they had made the primary sacrifice for him. And that he is, his, his life and his circumstances were technically of secondary nature because of the gospel. And once again, Paul is saying, hey, I can rejoice no matter the circumstances. If I'm in prison or I'm out of prison, if life or death, he can rejoice. And now he's telling him, hey, you guys, you can rejoice with me as well. It's not just about him. And he counts it as a privilege to bear their burdens as they are, are facing opposition for the gospel. So what we can pull away from this is that Paul reminds them to hold fast to the word of faith that they can still have joy even when they are facing opposition and suffering the gospel. Now you're asking, okay, great, this is a great passage, now how can we apply this to our lives? Because, well, first and foremost, my first application here for us today is to know and obey God's word. Know and obey God's word, right? Paul is already in verse 12, he said, hey, continue in the things there you have always obeyed. Right, what do you think? Paul just had some fireside chat with him and said, hey guys, here's some good truths that I've come up with. I wrote down on a napkin at you know, the coffee shop down the road. No, Paul has been teaching them God's word, right? So he's telling, hey, these are the things as new believers to, to know. And what Paul is getting at, he says, at the end of the day, we're called to know this book. He, he, that's the only way we're going to obey God is if we know this book. So if, if we don't spend time reading this, how else are we going to obey that? Even Jesus tells the disciples right before he goes up into heaven in, in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 19, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You hear it there. The command there is make disciples. 
But he says he shows them how to do that. He says, baptize them, but also teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus spent three years of his life teaching the disciples all these truths. We see it in the Gospels. I'm reading through the book of Matthew, and, and it's just beautiful the things that Paul or Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. So at the end of the day, if we're going to call to make disciples, we've got to teach them the thing that we're called to do is from this word. So we must know this word intimately. I, w- I would challenge you, if you've never read this, full, this book fully the way through, you need to. Because we're called to know this book. It's just like any other thing we're called to do our job. We, we want to know how to do it. Well, here's how we walk in obedience to God. And building on that, the second point is, or second application is to live a life that is in line with God's word. Of course, this continues to build off knowing God's word. Because if we're supposed to live a life of continued obedience and we don't know how to do that, well then, of course, we need to live from this book. If we know God's word, then we can align our lives according to God's word. We don't get to pick and choose, right, what we disagree with or agree with. And culture wants to do that, right? They, they want to say, oh, well, marriage is this. Well, when God's word says it's something else, right? So we need to understand what it is, our marching orders. And third, the third application, the final application is rejoice when you suffer for the gospel. Right, when we live a life that is counterculture, that is set apart, we're going to face opposition. We may not be facing death. We may not fear the ability for someone to come in here and drag us off and take us to prison for meeting, but, but we will. Because right? if, if we believe this book to be true and everything in it, right, we're going to face opposition from culture. You may already have. Right? The world does not want to believe this book. If anything, they want to throw it away and say, no, that's outdated, it's wrong. Well, at the end of the day, we know that this book is 100% true, and we have to live that way. So know that we're going to face some sort of opposition, and it could be to that point where we're pastors are arrested and things like that because we're faithfully preaching God's word. And even in the, in the, the garden, if we were to go back to Genesis, the first sin came about because the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? Because at the end of the day, he wanted them to doubt what God had said. So when Christians, we stand up for our faith, we are going to face backlash. We're called, though, to react in the way that the apostles did in Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41. And when they had called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And listen to how they responded. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So imagine with me for a second a world where most of the population was completely blind. They couldn't see a thing. right? Men and women not able to see the way they were intended to see. And then, of course, now imagine the population, the rest of the population that actually does have sight. They have sight to see the things that they were designed to from the beginning. And that would be pretty terrible if if the majority of the whole population was blinded. But I think what would be even more terrible is the blind leading those who have sight around in life. Imagine the blind telling the seeing how to do things, how to live their life, how to see things in life. Now, go, go, let's go a step further in this illustration. Imagine the people who do have sight being okay with this. Being okay with being told how to live their life by the blind person. In church, we live in a time that is exactly that way. 
right, that the world around us wants to try and dictate to us how we're called to live our lives as Christians. And last time I checked, that's not how it works. They want to tell us how to live. They want to try and redefine truth. They are the ones who believe that their eyes have been finally opened to the truth. And what's worse is that there are Christians who go along with this. That they, they think popular culture is more important than what God's Word says. And if you haven't figured it out, the world around us is lost, right? <laughs> we understand that. That they are blinded to the truth, and our job is not to be led by them, but to lead them to the truth. Right? If somebody's in a, in a building that's called on fire, we don't go in there and hang out with them. We go in there and rescue them from the fire. So our job is to be a light in a dark world. I know this passage, maybe the way I present it, is kind of heavy, but maybe it should be, because it shows that the fact that we live in the culture that we live in is totally different than from a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Right? It's completely shifted in how our culture views things. So when we see this, Paul is really calling us to live a life of continued obedience, a life set apart, and a life rejoicing in God. The choice is ours, right? But that the beautiful thing, like I mentioned earlier, is that we don't have to do this in our own power, right? God is there for us. We get to go and walk in the light. For those of us who are Christians, we do not have to fear the darkness around us. Right? You, you maybe heard the term, the light shines, shines brighter in the darkness. And life's pretty dark in that sense, but at the end of the day, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. If you haven't read the end of this book, we win, okay? It's like you watch in primetime Olympics, right? You may have already know the results. You're like, there's no way they're going to win that race. Oh, yeah, they are, right? We know. We've already won the victory. The victory is ours. So when life gets tough, know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And then my last challenge is for those of you in this room who do not know Christ. You need to give your life to Christ. You don't have to live in the darkness any longer. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel today. You can come talk with me, uh, JD, any other person in this room who can probably show you how to do that, right? Believe in the gospel. Understand that Jesus died on the cross for you, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Jesus will forgive you of your sins. Today is the day of salvation. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. God, we know that you are in control of our life and that we don't have to fear the enemy. We don't have to fear the evil one or the darkness and the culture around us. Lord, you, as you've used this illustration or idea with Paul, that we are called to be lights in a dark world. I pray that, Lord, each person in this room who, who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, I pray that they would understand that there is so much at stake right now in our, in our culture that we cannot sit on the sidelines, right? that there's no B-team Christians. We're all in the fight together. So, Lord, I pray that we would be challenged to, to look at our own lives and see, hey, we, are we continuing in our obedience to you? Are we living a life that is set apart? And are we rejoicing even when we have to suffer the gospel or, or in other ways. So God, I just pray for each one of us in this room that you would continue to remind us that we don't have to do this in our own. And Lord, I pray for any person in this room who does not have a personal relationship with you, that, that even now that they would be convicted of their sins and that they would see that the only 
hope for them is Jesus and his blood. And Lord, I thank you that, that this book is true. And Lord, we thank you for this day. In your name we pray. Amen.